<clears throat> Good to see all of you today. Um, you know, we're going through Nehemiah, and um, um, it's, it's really um, interesting to me as we get to these last chapters, 11 and 12, are the last things leading up to the dedication of the wall. But if you recall, the wall was finished back in chapter 6, but it's not dedicated until chapter 12. And so you think, well, what's going on here? And there's always a tendency, you know, just to make me, maybe just because you want to appear smart or something, to overthink things and make things complicated when they aren't, which reminds me of all these um, really terrible jokes that I get from Lugie um, pretty much every, every week or so. And, and, um, and this week, while I was with some of my grandkids down in Lake Jackson, he sent me another one, and I just racked my brain trying to figure out what does this mean. And he says, what do you call Bob the Builder when he retires? And I racked and racked and racked my brain, and I couldn't figure out what it was, so I just put two question marks in response to him, and he said, Bob. <laughs> so I spoke to my five-year-old grandson in Lake Jackson, Dawson, and I said, Dawson, what do you call Bob the Builder when he stops working? And he looked at me and said, Bob. <laughs> so either my five-year-old is smarter than I am, which is very likely, or Lugie has the mind of a five-year-old, <laughs> which is also very likely. All that to say we can overthink things when things should not be overthought. They're just, they're plain, we're just to take things simply and, and not try to make it more difficult than what it is. And as I said, back in chapter 6, the wall was finished. And this was one of the principal reasons that Nehemiah came to Jerusalem was to see the wall constructed. He also wanted to see the people encouraged and, and strengthened in their faith. And the wall was just a means for that to happen. Um, and so we're told in chapter 6, verse 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month Elad, um, in, the, in 52 days, and so it's miraculous. And even the enemies recognized that only God could be um, the re only God could be the reason for why it was finished as quickly as it was, especially in the midst of all the opposition that they faced. And so you think, okay, the wall's finished. Now what do you do? Dedicate the wall, right? And they and that's going to happen, but not until chapter 12. So this is the, what's going on. Well, as, as important as the dedication of the wall is, and we're going to look at why that's important, more important than that is that the people's hearts be right. Because ultimately, what does it matter if you're doing right things, even religious things, doing good things in the name of God, but your heart is far from God? It matters nothing to God. God's not impressed. And so these in-between six chapters are about the people's heart being right. So that before they dedicate the temple, it will come from the right place of purity of heart, of recognizing the compassion, the faithfulness of God, as we saw last week, in contrast to their own sin, that they deserve nothing from God but judgment, but all they've received from God is His mercies and His compassion. And that, once that's in place, then Nehemiah can say, let's go dedicate the wall. 
So chapter 11 is one more thing that has to happen before the wall is dedicated in chapter 12. And that is the city needs to be occupied. Because the temple's been rebuilt. Ezra did that. The wall has been rebuilt. Nehemiah has done that. Those are huge things. And that speaks to the covenant faithfulness of God. So now any Israelite or any person outside of Israel could say clearly God has not abandoned his people. The temple and the wall are proof that God is still working in, on behalf of his people and that he is still maintaining and fulfilling the covenant that he's made with them. So there's a big deal. It's more than just symbolic, but it, it's, it's, it's in concrete, literally, they can see the faithfulness of God. But the city is empty. Who would want to live there? It's ruins. It's a wall around ruins. So a few people did live there, mainly some of the leaders, says in chapter 11, as we read, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people did not. Now the way this is, is outlined, it's not, again, complicated. This chapter 11 is about the residents of the land and on through chapter 12 to verse 26. First, the residents of Jerusalem, then the residents of the outlying towns, and then um, some remarks about the priests and Levites who came back to Israel under Zerubbabel's return. So the residents of, of Jerusalem, though, are very, very few. And so this is, Jerusalem, remember, is the political and religious center of the world for the Jewish people. So now you've got a city with a temple and a wall, but almost no inhabitants and just ruins. Not a good place to live. And it's a bad statement, again, on what is on the reality of their faith. Symbolic, yes, but significant nonetheless. That an empty city, the city of God, the dwelling place of God, is empty. What does that say about their faith? It's a dead faith. You would expect that this city should be a vibrant place because their faith is vibrant. And so God's saying it's important that this city be occupied. Very significant. So he says, cast lots. So that 10% of the people, and there were no more than probably a million people in all the city, probably that's a very high estimate in all the country. But they said 10% were to change their location, pick up stakes, and move to Jerusalem. To not been easy, wouldn't have been comfortable, would have been um, um, moving from a nice home to ruins, um, moving from a place where your businesses were established to a place where there's very little commerce. So it would have been a costly thing to do, but it needed to happen. And so the word went out, we're going to do this, and apparently some people just volunteered, and they said no reason to have the, the dedication. We'll just, I mean, the, um, the lot, we'll just volunteer to do it. And so it says, verse 2, And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So the occupation or reoccupation and habitation of the city takes place. Now, just some basic observations and lessons from this. There's no grumbling. There's no complaining. I mean, we, we get, you know, you, you get a notice from your employer, you're going to be transferred. Are you kidding me? Do I get any say in this? No. And, and, but these people, there's no complaint. And this is not moving up the ladder this is moving down the ladder economically. No complaint. There is a readiness. Where did this readiness come from? The previous chapters. 
In the previous chapters, they've been acknowledging their sinfulness, the faithfulness of God, and in that con the conclusion of that is it only makes sense to say yes to the Lord. God's way is better than our way. And if God is wanting 10% of the people to go to Jerusalem and we're casting lots and God is in control of everything that happens, and as Proverbs says, every decision of the lot it comes from God, then if, if this is what we're going to do, then God is clearly handpicking us. Who are we to argue against God? You can see their hearts are right. That's what's been happening since chapter 6. God has been working in the hearts of these people. Now they are compliant, they are responsive, they are obedient, and this is remarkable. Go to Jerusalem, and they pick up and go. They understood that God is the one who determines where we live. And we need to be willing to live where God wants you to live. God determines the sphere of our service. And, and we are to serve in that sphere in which God calls us. We should be willing to serve whether or not it profits us personally. There's going to be a list of names here in chapter 11. Those who are in Jerusalem, some people are named, other people are not. Just said oh, this whole family, but they're not named. It doesn't matter. We should be willing to serve whether our name is written down or not, whether it personally profits us or not, because God is good, and the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect, because God is God and not us. Another lesson here, again, very basic, the presence of people in Jerusalem is very significant. Whether their names are highlighted or not, presence is significant. And the same is true for each of us. God has given every one of us a sphere, a place where he wants us to be. And it's not up to us to determine whether that is a significant place or not. What is up to us is simply, God, is this where you want me to be? And stay put. Ian Thomas used to preach a message, sent, went, and put. If this is where you've sent me, then this is where I will go, and I will stay until you move. Till you move me, this is where I'll be. We should never underestimate the importance of our presence in being simply where God has placed us, whether we see anything coming from it or not. Many times God is going to hide from our eyes the significance of our presence. He knows it would go to our heads if we realize how significant it is. Why should he tell us? Ours is to say yes and to be where he wants us to be. Presence is vital, not only for the city in order to be a place of vitality, but it's vital for each of us, whether it's in our job or in our families, wherever, dads and moms, we, we, we can get so discouraged and so frustrated even with each other as, as married couples and we think that there, my, my presence here is nothing but detrimental to this family. How many times have we heard people say that? This family would be better off if I were gone. That is a lie. How can a broken family be better off than a united family? Dads and moms, stay together. Be with your kids. Be there for them. Who can say? I mean, I look back on raising our kids, and I just go, I'd like to think I did a good job. But if one, all I can say is, I know I was there. 
Beyond that, I can't say. But I know I was there. And that is huge. The same thing I remember, you know, my, you know, just a child knowing when he comes home from school, mom's going to be there. Somebody's going to be there. They're not just going to be alone. It is significant to have presence. They may never remember a conversation between, you know, where they got counsel from their parents, but they will remember if their parents were there or whether they were absent. Same is true for coming to church, attending church. It not only builds up your faith to be among God's people, but it builds up the faith of others to see us gather together. It is significant. One of the values of sending your kids to camp, we hear it every year at His Hill with our summer camp, especially as kids get into junior high and high school and they begin to be openly mocked for their faith. And they tell us year after year how significant it is to them simply to be in the presence of other Christians and to realize they are not alone in this world. Showing up is significant. And they come, well, what did you learn? I learned I'm not alone. That's significant. Presence is important. The same thing with kids come to Bible school. Not kids, sorry I called you kids. I'm old, you're not. When young men and women come to Bible school, that's better. You know, one of the things that happens is they realize there's other people out there that think the way that I do. There's other people who want to know the Lord like I do. I thought I was alone. And just the presence together is so incredibly significant. Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel, clearly. The church does not have a capital city. Sorry, Rome, um, you're not the capital of the church. The church does not have a capital city. It does not have a land. The church is not Israel. We are not a substitute for Israel. We're not a replacement for Israel. We are two different entities. But there are some parallels, some equivalences. Just as Jerusalem needed occupants, it needed to be inhabited. The church needs to recognize that it is a gathering. And when you have no gathering, you have no church. Why do I say that? When you look, and I was just talking to a friend of mine this week who is much smarter than a five-year-old. And um, two weeks ago, a guy I went to seminary with, brilliant fella, and... Um, and he called me up, and we were just chatting on the phone, and, and, and he said, the, the etymology for the word church is two Greek words, ek and klesia. And they mean literally to call out, or those who have been called out from. Okay, that's the etymology. Etymology does not determine meaning. It's just an interesting historical fact. What determines meaning is usage. Now, it is true, as the church of God, we have been called out from the world. We don't belong to this world. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are a new entity, all true. But that church does not, is not used typically in the term, in that way of being called out. It's used meaning assembly. So it's like the word dandelion. Everybody knows what a dandelion is, right? 
when you study the etymology of the word, and it literally means lion's tooth. So what? It's interesting, but it doesn't tell me what a dandelion is. Oh, dandelion, lion's tooth. No, it doesn't begin to explain to me what a dandelion is. The etymology is interesting, but it doesn't necessarily inform me about the meaning of the word. And the meaning of church is assembly. It is gathering. And if you have no gathering, you don't have a church. It's that important. You've got a city, but you don't have any people. Is it a city? It makes no sense. A city has people. It's to be inhabited. And a church is to be assembled. It is to be a gathering. So that's the parallel that I'm seeing here. And that it is so important to understand this is what we are. We are a gathering of people. Yes, we've been called out, but we've been called out so that we would gather together. So that together we would remember the Lord with his death, as we just did this morning. Together we would be together. And, and to the redundancy, together we would, we, would, we would come and worship the Lord and gather and by our mere presence be encouraging and strengthening each other in the faith. It is vitally as important, vital important, just as important as the city to be occupied is the church to be gathered. No wonder there is so much pressure in this world, always has been, always will be, to keep Christians from gathering. This is nothing new because of COVID. This has been going on for 2,000 years. There is immense pressure from this secular, godless world to keep Christians from gathering. This is why we wrote it into our Bill of Rights. We have the right to assemble. We have the right to worship. That's what it was about. It was about the church getting together. Not about political rallies. And there's so much that can move us away from this. I read a sermon this week. I don't read sermons very often, but I read this old sermon by D.L. Moody from the late 1800s. Man, he was quite the evangelist. And you, boy, that guy, unbelievable. And, he's, and I'm reading this sermon, I'm going, are you kidding me? And he's just going, he's just railing. I don't know who he's preaching to, but he, man, I don't know if they ever came back. But he was just saying, he was saying, listen, folks. And he's saying, it's not just about assembling, that's so important, but he says, assembling with right hearts, with pure hearts, that we are open vessels, clean vessels for God to use. And so you know what he preached against? Bicycles. He goes, Worst thing that ever came along was the bicycle. And I'm going, what? And he's going, because everybody can just get on their bike and go out in the country and, you know, say they've been with God and they haven't been in the church. But they've been out looking at nature because they've got a bike and they can go out in the country on Sunday morning. He goes, I hate bicycles. We should get rid of all of our bicycles. And I'm just going, wow. Sunday papers. Man, he went on and on about Sunday papers. And he goes, yeah, you guys say there's, a, there, there's, you know, there's, there's evangelistic messages in the Sunday paper. Well, that was back in the 1800s. And he says, well, let me tell you what's also in the paper. And he numbered. He actually went through and counted how many stories are there about, about you know, theft and how many or murders and, and you know, all the bad stuff. And he goes, he goes it, is, it is less than 1% of the Sunday paper is good. And yet you will stay home from church and read the Sunday paper so you can be informed. And he's just railing on them. But his heart was the church assembled is the church. And we should guard that. 
and come together with pure hearts, together corporately to worship God. Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life. And the church gathered is the center of Christian life. Now, I'm not saying the church is a substitute for Jesus. Please understand. Just as Jerusalem was not a substitute for God. But in terms of, of society and how God meant for this Jewish society to work, Jerusalem, the inhabitation of Jerusalem was vital, key. And how God has, has determined that his body work, it is just as vital that we be together. Should never be viewed as an option. There is no good substitute for the church gathered. Now, that's chapter 11. The inhabitation of Jerusalem, and then we're told about the rest of Israel and the inhabitants that were there. We're also told about the priests and the Levites. This goes on into chapter 12. And then finally in verse 27, the dedication of the wall. So in verse 27 of chapter 12, it says, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. So if you're a Levite, come to Jerusalem. Because we're about to have the dedication of the wall. Again, this wouldn't have been easy. It would have been very difficult for some of the Levites just to stop whatever they're doing. But it's important. And they willingly without hesitation came. All the Levites from all over the country came to Jerusalem for the dedication. And so they come, and then we're told in verse 30, and the priest and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So before we can go any further, and this you can just, as you can see, it's just all building up to this. We have to not just assume purity. Make yourselves pure. Now, it's not, we're not even told how they did that. We're just told they did it. Well, I can imagine that it, there was probably some shed blood ritual, because that often was the case in the Old Testament when it came to making things pure. It was probably an, an, a decision, a volitional act of separating themselves from things that were not pure. So the real question is today, how do we purify ourselves? Because the Lord wants a pure people. And we have to recognize that you can only be clean in the sight of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what Brian read from Isaiah this morning. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The only way to be right with God, to be cleansed before God, a holy God, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ died for you and for me to wash away our sin. The stain of the guilt of sin, I can never remove. I can't touch it. It is an indelible stain that only God can remove through Jesus Christ dying as a substitute for me. So that's what we mean when we say His blood washes us clean. It's not literal. It's metaphorical. We're saying that Christ dying in place of me God, a holy and just God, has accepted the righteousness of Christ on behalf of me. And he says, I take that. I will let Christ's righteousness be a substitute for you and your sin. 
And so the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin that I might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not complicated. I cannot purify myself. I am made pure only through Jesus Christ. And the only way that happens is saying, Jesus, I need you. Thank you that you died for me so that my sin could be washed away and that I could be made righteous. And I accept what you have done for me in simple faith. Thank you that I don't have to do anything to secure this other than just say, thank you, God, for what you have done on my behalf. And the scripture says at that moment, you become born again, a child of God, and you become a recipient of eternal life. From that point on, we make ourselves pure by simply being in agreement with God about our sin. We confess our sin. And we say, Jesus, I've blown it. I've sinned. Thank you for your righteousness and your forgiveness that you cleansed me from all unrighteousness. And we move forward again in faith based upon Christ and what he has done. It's not complicated. And so finally, we get into the temple being dedicated. Verse 31. Then I, this is Nehemiah, had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall and I appointed two great choirs. One will be led by Ezra, the other will be read, led by Nehemiah. And they are at the farthest corner away from the temple, and they're going to go in opposite directions around the wall. The wall's big enough that these people can stand up there side by side, walk the top of the wall, and they will walk the entire perimeter of the wall and meet at the temple. What a great idea. And while they're, and they're only the leaders up there, and some priests and some singers, and they've got all kinds of instruments, and they're up there singing all kinds of praise songs to the top of their voices. And everybody else is down in the city, because, again, all of Israel has gathered together for this, and all the others that aren't on the wall are down there just singing along and clapping their hands, and the noise is so great, the joy is so great that it can be heard well outside the city. And everybody is hearing the joy of the people of Israel. So the first choir, Ezra was with that. The second choir, verse 38, was Nehemiah. Then the second choir proceeded to the left, and while I followed them with half the people on the wall. Verse 40, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials with me. And then they have an offering, verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions for the first fruits and the tithes to gather into, uh, into them from the fields for the cities of the portions required by law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. They're providing for all the, the Levites and the priests. So the dedication of the wall. What is this about? Well, it's essential that first there be personal purity. What is the lesson? Worshiping of God in an acceptable way requires personal purity. We have been made to worship God. And I'm not just talking about Christians. Every single human being has been made to worship God. And if we are not worshiping God, we are worshiping something else. Because we are worshipers. 
Where do you find your greatest joy? Where do you find your significance, your satisfaction? That is what you worship. Where do you find life? That is what you worship. It can be your job. It can be your family. It's usually not bad things, good things. But where do you find your significance? Where do you draw life from? That is what you're worshiping. And every single human being is a worshiper. The only question is, will we worship the one true God? For it is from Him that we move and have our being. We are made by Him and we are made for Him. And anything that we worship other than Him is idolatry. Whether it's family, job, whatever you want to put, it, put in the blank. If there is something that I'm finding significance from, life from, other than God, I am an idolater. I am not a worshiper of God. So God is looking for purity of worship. Those who worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that can only happen as Jesus Christ is sanctified as Lord. Personal purity is essential to worshiping God. We must prepare ourselves. This is what D.L. Moody was after, I'm sure, mentally, spiritually, and physically. We should give thought to worshiping God. I am not musically inclined, though I appreciate music. I've said that many times. And this is why it's so important to make sure that we understand music does not equate with worship. That doesn't mean you can't sing and worship God. But music was never meant to be a substitute or to be an equivalency with worship. Worship is bigger and broader than music. Worship is life. Where do I get my life? And worship is saying, Jesus is my life. And so you can worship Him and never sing a song. And you can be singing and not worshiping Him. So we need to understand these things in their proper place. I believe that's really where D.L. Moody was going. We should give thought to worship. We should take it seriously. And ultimately, it is simply, don't make it complicated, worship is what Paul says in Romans 12.1. It is the presenting of ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice. And God says, that's worship. It should be corporate as well as individual. When this church was, was built, I don't know how many years ago now, it was the first church that Bernie Bible Church had owned. We had been in the log cabin out on the interstate, but that was owned by somebody else, and we weren't in a position to buy it, and the owner wanted to sell it, so we left. We were meeting in the high school for a while at their auditorium, we met in a restaurant at one time. It's no longer in existence, but a Mexican restaurant here in Bernie, La Hacienda. And they had a neon light right behind where we put our little portable pulpit. And the neon light said, Bud is light. <laughs> oh, just Bud Light. said Bud Light. And so we, every Sunday, we would put a piece of cardboard, um, poster board over the Bud and say, Jesus is light. So we wouldn't have to look at Bud Light. 
So that's kind of been the history. And then it, God provided this property here in the middle of town. And we recognized this is amazing. I'm just amazing, you know, that, that we could build right here in the middle of town. And, and God did it. Obviously, God used people. But when we moved into this building, we had a dedication service. And there were a couple of individuals that God used more than others to get this building built. We did not recognize them. And they did not want to be recognized. The dedication of the wall is not a recognition of all of those who worked on the wall. It's a recognition of God. Because they're saying that no matter how many people worked on this wall, it would have never happened if God hadn't done it. We did the same thing with this building. God did this. And so a, a dedication is, first of all, a recognition of origin. We dedicate babies. Now we do that each January on Sanctity of Life Sunday. Wonderful times become one of my favorite Sundays. And one of the things that we're doing there is recognizing origin. These babies are a gift from God. God gave these babies. So we're not saying, congratulations, mom and dad, on what you did. We're saying, look what God has done. It's a recognition of origin. From God, by God, he did it. The point is, it is pointless to dedicate to God what originates from the flesh. We don't do that. I hope you understand that. Ishmael originated from Abraham's flesh, and God rejected Ishmael because you can't dedicate to God what God is not the author of. The same thing is true with our activities. If we're involved in activities that did not have their origin from God, you can't dedicate it to God. So why say this building is God's, you know, dedicated to God if we aren't sincere in our hearts to saying there would be no building here if God hadn't done it? That's not just giving empty words to something. We're expressing truth. This is why when we pray before we eat, it shouldn't be ritualistic, but it should be sincere. We would not have this food in front of us if God hadn't given it. Yes, God gave us a job. Yes, God gave us money. But God did this. And that's why we say, thank you, God, for this food. Thank you, God, for a building. Thank you, God, for these babies. Thank you, God, for, these, for this job. But if God's not the origin of it, stop trying to dedicate it to God. He wants nothing to do with it. So you, you builders, Bob, the builders that are maybe here, you build something and you go, man, look what I've done. Now I'm going to dedicate this to God. You know you can't do that. God says, what are you talking about? You're going to dedicate to me what you did? It's flesh. And it brings no pleasure to God. So dedication is, first of all, a recognition of origin. Then it is a recognition of ownership. It belongs to God. And the point is, you don't take back what isn't yours to take. So you dedicate this child to God. Well, now he's God's. So this is what Hannah did 
when Samuel was born. And boy, she did it like no other mom had up to that point. Where she had, she's, God, if you give me a child, I'll give the child back to you. God gave her a child. And then when that child was old enough to no longer nurse, she dressed him up in a little robe, and she took him to the temple, the tabernacle, and she dropped him off. And once a year, she'd come back with another new robe. Wow. See, that's dedication. She gave that child to God and said, he is not mine to take back. I have said so many times over the years, I wish that all of us who have children would remember not to take back what we've given to God. When those children start making decisions to seek after God, to serve God, don't get in the way. Don't take back what you've given to God. It's a recognition of ownership. The same is true with our marriages. Every time I perform officiate a wedding, I, I want to hear that young couple say, this marriage is dedicated to God. Well, then you don't take it back. You don't make it about you. It's God's. To dedicate clearly Intertwined in this is a renunciation of self-acclaim, of personal credit. It's a recognition that it's all from God. And finally, dedication is an act of worship. It's a time to give thanks and to praise God for what God has done. And that is finally where Israel is at. It's taken a long time, 12 chapters, to get to the place where they can say, we're ready. The wall was built back in chapter 6, but we're ready now to dedicate it. Their hearts had to be right. So this isn't a sermon just about go out and dedicate everything to Jesus. Everything should be dedicated to Jesus, not just babies and buildings. Our bodies, our marriages, our jobs, dare I say, our vacations, our free time. It's not our time. It's not our life. He is to be the originator of all that we do, everything, so that everything we do is an act of worship, acknowledging Him as the origin, acknowledging Him as the owner. And it's not us. But for that to happen, to live in that way, where life is worship. My heart has to be right. And the biggest thing that God is doing in each of our lives is preparing our hearts. Everything that happens in life, I'm convinced, is just another way that God is working to prepare our hearts to yield to Him everything in dedication. And we should see it all that way. God, everything that happens, I'm preaching to myself with this. Because it's just so easy to get frustrated by the interruptions and, and, and problems of life. But rather than see them as interruptions and problems, is that God is working. Israel had plenty of interruptions and problems, but God is working to bring about the purity of heart. It's that from a pure heart, everything would be given 
He is a great God. And obviously, if you've been awake during the last 30 minutes, you understand that I'm saying this is not just about Israel and a city being occupied. This is about God having his way with each of us. And it is also about us understanding that just as a city needs occupants, the church needs to be gathered because we are a gathering by definition. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you again for your word, for the simplicity and clarity of it. But God, we depend upon your spirit to make these things alive within us. And that we'd leave this place yielded to you, obedient, God, to you in faith. That, Lord, our eyes are on you, trusting you to accomplish in us all that you desire. That we would have your heart, God, to be gathered together as your people. And we would have pure hearts, God, that from a place of purity, that we would with open hands and clean hands yield ourselves to you in worship. And I thank you, God, that that kind of worship is always acceptable. We recognize you as the origin and the owner of all that is good. In Jesus' name, amen.